Hi, I'm Francisca, and you are listening to the Francisca Show podcast as part of JewishCoffeehouse.com. If you haven't yet, make sure to go to their website and check out all the other amazing podcasts that are there to entertain and educate you. I want to let you know that entrepreneurship won't be sticking around too much longer on The Francisca Show due to some of the feedback I've been getting from you. Yes, from you. So keep reaching out and letting me know how you feel about this podcast and these episodes that I am curating for you. Before we start this week's episode, I'd like to remind you that I am a podcast success coach. I help entrepreneurs, leaders, rabbis, schools launch and produce their podcasts. If you know anyone who needs this service, please do put them in touch with me. I am so grateful to all of you who have been sending me clients. And on another note, I want you to know all of you who are reaching out and asking for referrals, I am so happy to keep making introductions to videographers, producers, voice teachers, and so many other creative service providers. Make sure to check out last week's episode. And without any further ado, here we go. Okay, so today on the show with us, we have my father, also known as Chief Rabbi Pinchas Goldschmidt, who is the Chief Rabbi of Moscow and President of the Conference of European Rabbis. Welcome to the show. Delighted to be with you. Thank you for your enthusiasm. Today is a special in honor of Father's Day. I know that's not a Swiss, Russian, Israeli, or European thing. It's an American thing. But it was an excuse to have you on the show. So let's start and just tell us in a few sentences about yourself. I was born in Switzerland to my parents. I grew up in Zurich. We spoke French at home and German in school and Swiss German in the streets. And that's where I lived till I was 11 years old. After my father moves to Israel, he attends Panovich Yeshiva, then the Tells Yeshiva in Chicago, followed by a combined study at Ner Israel Rabbinical College, also known as Ner Israel, where he also studies and gets a Master of Science from Johns Hopkins University. From Baltimore, he meets my mother, they get married, move to Israel, and then to Moscow. For more details, check out the Mother's Day special. Did you ever experience imposter syndrome like you had to pretend like you were older or more knowledgeable than you were i don't think so i think i was always very true to myself and i always tried to be the person i am as a community rabbi what are some of the top pressing issues that european jury and russian jury is dealing with today of course the we're all reeling from the coronavirus, and uh, Russia was especially hard hit with corona. It's still in the middle of the third wave of corona, and uh, well, a few thousand Jews died because of it. And contrary to Western countries, many people are afraid to take the vaccine, the Russian vaccine. There's no trust in that. The Russian vaccine is more popular outside of Russia than inside of Russia. So we have been trying to keep the community and the masters uh, and schools running during COVID online and also financially it was difficult because people, a lot of people in the community lost their jobs or had financial trouble. So uh, there was a challenge all over to keep things going while this pandemic was going on. 
I would say that that's, this was has been at the forefront during the last year and a half. Besides that, running a community is a complicated matter. As a rabbi, you're dealing not only with the spiritual issues, you also deal with the financial issues and also with organizational issues. There's a shul, there's a, the assistant rabbis, the schools, there's a kolel and the other structures which have to work, kashas and etc. So when there's such a functioning community, there's always, always somewhere there's a problem which you have to deal with. Yes. Well, thank you for expanding on this a little bit. I'd be very curious to know, I'm sure there are lots of people listening who would love to know how you fundraise and how do you sell Judaism in a way that by selling, I mean, is when you're fundraising. So people want to donate and want to be a part of something that's making an impact. What would you say the things that you have learned as a successful leader who built a community from scratch? When people give money, they want to know where the money is going to, where the money is being used for. So there's one thing which is called transparency. There's another thing which is called trust. And number three is also results. So you have to show the results to the sponsors and to show to what extent you realize their dreams and their investment. So this is an ongoing uh, relationship which has to be nurtured, which has to be worked on. And then there are always people who move away, new people are coming, and it's always a challenge to, to find new people. And when the economic uh, downturn, so there are people who yesterday were your biggest sponsors, and today they just disappeared. So there's always a difficulty to find new sponsors. But what do you do to find new sponsors? It's not like they're listed in a directory. <laughs> Maybe in Forbes they are. A Jewish community is service-based, which means you are offering certain service from cradle to grave, meaning uh, kindergarten, schools, after-school, youth groups, adult education, help with seniors and uh, the elderly. So most people who give the services or get the services, so there are those people who are related to those people who get services or give services. So they're interested to sponsor. The problem is when you have, um, in Moscow, the majority of the business community left the country in the last uh, eight years. If somebody does not live anymore in your community, in your country, city, he sees much less reason to sponsor the community he used to live in. How do you bring in new people at this point? So you get to know new people and uh, you get your message across, you know, and the people who... Yesterday, I didn't have what to eat, and today, the billionaires. So God has very strange ways of you know, choosing who is going to have the ability to be a vehicle to help to build. And this is the challenge to identify and to get the interest of those people. So a question to you as a parent. Others in your situation who are considering to move into an out-of-town community without Jewish infrastructure, well, at least that that is what Moscow looked like when you were moving there. How do you address the concern of how do you raise from kids in a no-man's land when it comes to Judaism? I know New Yorkers think that everywhere beyond the Hudson and the Harlem River that's out of town, 
So that's why Moscow is also out of town, even though Moscow is a city of 14 million people. So yes, it, it seems to be easier to raise children in an environment which is totally firm with the schools and with the facilities and institutions which are there, both physical and spiritual. However, sometimes it is easier to raise your children out of town, meaning in smaller communities, and the more places which are which are more isolated, because in bigger places you basically have to go with the stream. You the trend, the stream of everyone. It, it is the the greater public which is deciding where to go, and you just have to go with them. While in a smaller community, especially if you're the rabbi of the community, you have much more choices. And then you have to actually implement those choices and create them for yourselves. Right. I know that you've been on the forefront of European jury and Russian jury and anti-Semitism, and America is joining this new concept of anti-Semitism in a way that hasn't really been experienced in the United States. What would you say the lessons or things that Jews in the States have to watch out for? It used to be that Jews in the States thought that uh, all the problems are in Europe. Russian Eastern Europe. Over there, oh, over there there's anti-Semitism, over there they kill Jews. But in the United States, we live in the Garden of Eden. We live in a place where nothing can happen, and we're 100% safe. And it's safer than Israel, it's safer than Europe, it's uh, just the safest place. And unfortunately, what the last few years has shown us is that what has happened in Europe can also happen in the United States. Attacks against synagogues in San Diego and Cleveland and against other Jewish institutions have shown us that uh, the problem of anti Semitism is universal. It's, uh, uh, there's no country and there's no society which is ex- exempt from this virus. It's like the coronavirus. The coronavirus is all over the world and has different mutations. So, anti Semitism is also, also all over the world and it has different mutations. So how have you been dealing with anti-Semitism in Europe? So anti-Semitism has come from many different quarters. One side, it comes from the far right. Far right, so the people are neo-Nazis. They hate the Jews, they hate the Muslims, they hate everyone. And uh, they're trying basically to make life difficult for Jews, not only in phys- through physical attacks, mostly all the attacks against cemeteries in Europe, when cemeteries are being desecrated, it's usually all the far-right people. They're also they're very strong. The far-right has now representation in most European parliaments. The IFD in Germany and uh, Le Pen's party in France, Wilders' party in Ireland, and Freedom Party in Austria. So they command already a very strong political presence and the fringe, the right-wing fringe, uh, goes and attacks on that against shuls, against people, like the shul in, in Hanau, in Germany, was attacked two years ago in Yakepa. So a person tried to come in and, and shoot the people down. Thanks to God, nothing happened, because he couldn't open the door of the shul. So instead of killing Jews, he went to a coffee shop next door and started killing, it was a Muslim coffee shop for Turkish people and started killing Muslims. So this is one manifestation of anti-Semitism. So how do you 
fight this kind of anti-Semitism is basically A, by laws. Number two, law enforcement. Sometimes you have laws on the books, but the law enforcement agencies, the police, uh, they're, not, uh, they're not doing the work. They're, they're, they're sleeping. Something happens, then they wake up. They're writing a report about it. And then uh, security. We have to provide for security for schools, for schools, for everything. And here, again, the government has to get involved because security costs a lot of money. Many European communities, uh, security eats up uh, up to 25% of the budget. For example, in a community like Munich, you have 18 people who are employed full-time for security. It's a lot of money. For this money, we're able to bring another few rabbis, another few teachers, another few chazan. So uh, we're asking, we, we approach to the Conference of European Rabbis as, as events during the year. One event is with the World Economic Forum. The other event is with the Munich, Munich Security Conference, which is like uh, the World Conference on Security Issues where all the governments are represented. Over there, we demanded from governments to chip in and pay for security of the Jewish institutions in their countries. And uh, you know, some governments said, like the Swiss government said, oh, the Jews are rich enough to pay for their own security. We don't have to pay for it. Now, if you're talking about security, like, you know, uh, like some uh, robbers, a Ganovin coming in, taking stuff. Okay, so that's the, the responsibility of each person to make sure that the apartment is secure and, that, and to, your business is secure. But here, when I'm talking about terrorism, people coming with guns, people coming in with um, submachine guns or, or bombs, or, or, or they themselves are, are walking bombs. So that's really a that's something the government has to take care of. It's not the community. The far right is trying to make life miserable for the Jews by legislation, by making Jewish practice not legal. For example, Bismillah to say that you're not allowed to do Bismillah to the age of 14, or in, you're not allowed to do Shrita according to Halacha. The truth is, this has been basically legislation against the Muslims. Muslims also have shechita. I mean, it's called halal. And in terms of milah, they've been much less careful than we we are. There've been quite a few cases of, of children who got uh, very badly hurt by it. So they're legislating against the Muslims, but we are the collateral then. So that's one of our big challenges in Europe to fight those attempts to legislate against milah and against shechita. Belgium, Germany, Iceland, other countries. Okay, that's one type. Then we're going over to the other side, to the le extreme left, we're going to the Muslims. The 40 million Muslims in Europe, mostly immigrants from the Middle East. And um, among them, there are quite a few who have been radicalized by ISIS and by the Muslim Brotherhood. And they, it used to be that how to, how to get radicalized. You know, let's say there's a mosque. Inside the mosque, uh, there's an imam who is giving speeches, interpretation of uh, Sharia law, and he's, and he's trying to use his uh, speeches on uh, Islam to call on those young people to go on a jihad. Jihad is a holy war against whom? Against the Jews. Not against Israel, against the Jews who live in your city, whether it's Strasbourg or Brussels, whatever. And uh, those kids used to get out 
just take a knife, look for a Jew to, to kill. But now with the social media and the internet, there's no need for a mask. You sit in your home, you watch a movie or a speech by some kind of clergyman who is interested to radicalize people and who calls on you to go on a jihad. This kid who till yesterday was learning in school like a regular school kid and was playing soccer with his two neighbors, goes to the kitchen, takes a knife and goes to the street and tries to kill a person who was a young kid. So today with the social media, it's much harder to identify those people who get radicalized by, through the internet. So we are fighting with, together with the European Union to have a special envoy to, to fight against anti-Semitism. Her name is Katharina von Schnobein, she's German, working with the, and with the government to control the social media. Because it used to be on social media, everything, everything was allowed. Social media was like a free for all. You're able to call, use the social media to call and kill people, to go on terrorism, to go on jihad. Today, many countries, there are laws that uh, if you use the social media to uh, insult somebody, to uh, use it for racism, or call for terrorism or violence against anybody, this is a breach of the law. So you have to monitor them. And that's an ongoing fight between the high-tech companies like Facebook and Twitter and many of the governments. Here we see that the United States laws are also uh, the most liberal laws in, all, in the whole world. You have the First Amendment in the United States, the free speech. So free speech, uh, if it is free speech, is a, can I go on, the, on Facebook and says, there's a synagogue in my city, let's burn down the synagogue. That's free speech. I didn't, uh, did I break the law by writing this post? Most probably not. However, as we see now, also in the United States with its free speech laws and free speech fundamentals, you saw what happened with Trump after January 6th. Facebook decided we don't want Trump anymore because he called uh, to violence. And uh, so who is deciding what is kosher, what is not kosher? It's the government's no. It's the high-tech uh, companies, which is also a problem. And there's this uh, very famous Jewish actor, his name is Sasha Baron Cohen, he made a movie called Borat and, uh, about Kazakhstan. And uh, he gave a speech I think, two years ago at ADL in the United States and was saying that people speak about free speech, free speech, that uh, yes, free speech is, a, is a fundamental of any democracy. Yeah, but it doesn't mean to give a free platform to to people who disseminate hate and, and racism. Here, we're together with many other Jewish organizations. We're working together with the high-tech companies to rein in that the platform should not be used by all those people who want to disseminate hate and racism. So what are some of the practical things that you've gotten with the high-tech companies? So, for example, Facebook changed its policy and uh, it used to be that uh, when you used to put in the Facebook a keyword like Holocaust, you get connected to a whole bunch of Holocaust denials. Today, Holocaust denial is uh, forbidden, uh, forbidden and banned on Facebook. And also, if people call for racism or to hurt other minorities, Facebook usually 
delete those messages or Twitter, or, and those people are getting kicked out, uh, kicked off the platform. Yeah. So, how did you get involved with the Conference of European Rabbis and then become elected as president? And then I'd like to know more about the initiatives that the Conference of European Rabbis is involved with. I think you can tell some of the initiatives we're involved with better than me, you know? I work for the Conference of European Rabbis. I call them one of my clients. Okay, so you're going to tell about this project. Well, how did you get involved? How did you get started? No, I got involved because I was a rabbi in Europe. I was invited to join the conference. And then uh, in 1990, when I just uh, a few months after arriving in Moscow, the president of the standing committee of the conference, uh, Chief Rabbi Sirah, used to be the Chief Rabbi France, invited me to join the standing committee, which is like the, it's like the board of the conference. And then I was elected 10 years later as the chairman of the of the standing committee. And after Rabbi Sitchuk resigned, I became the president of the conference. Now you can tell about this other project with the CR Prize. So some of the CER initiatives include dealing on the legislation level, as you mentioned, going to the Munich Security Conference, dealing with governments, legislation, as well as high tech when it comes to banning anti-Semitism online. You're also involved in infrastructure, training young rabbis and giving them the tools they need to build and grow their communities in small European communities, as well as a Jewish based in the Jewish legal system, providing infrastructure with Jewish law when it comes to dealing with gerim, Jewish weddings and divorces. We're dealing with the Batedin the rabbinical courts of Europe will be on the level which will be accepted by the Israeli system of rabbinical courts. And then you have the side, or I like to call them the PR initiatives, the things that are proactive to make Jews more proactive part of society. Jews are contributing to society and not just to themselves. And that is a lot of the prize events, prizes that you offer the Lord Jacobowitz prize that goes to a European leader that is helping Jews, and the Matanel prize that goes to local European rabbis, and we have the Internet Entrepreneurs Prize. That's the initiative that I'm involved in. The Conference of European Rabbis rewards internet projects and startups that are helping make the world a better place, and they do not have to be Jewish at all, which is so beautiful because the internet definitely influences life. It influences halacha. And if we're not putting our money where, where our values are, then we're not contributing in a big way. So I'm very proud of this initiative. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. Did I miss anything before we move on to the guna? No, no. Okay. So uh, can you tell me a little bit about how have you personally got involved in this issue? And what have you done to help with this crisis? Okay, let's first of all get things into perspective. What are we talking about? Talking about a couple got married according to Allah, Orthodox Jewish wedding, with a chuppah. One side they get divorced. The woman cannot get a get because the husband doesn't want to give a get. Because the husband doesn't want to give a get, he wants to use it this uh, power because the get cannot be given with a without a husband's consent. So the husband's trying to use this in order to get some concessions regarding 
financial matters, children, or the husband wants to make just the life of his wife miserable, or the husband just uh, has an issue, whatever it is. So we're having uh, this uh, problem of uh, women who cannot get the, technically the divorced, meaning they're separated from the husband, they live alone. The husbands many times have started new families. And those women cannot restart their lives because they, halakhically, they're connected, to their, they're still married to their husband. So the women cannot get married, they cannot have children, and their life is on hold. Now, that's called the Aguna issue, because we have to understand, if you talk to Rabbanim about the Aguna issues in Halakha, they're talking about totally different Aguna. They're speaking about women who, whose husbands disappeared and they cannot find the husbands. So we don't know if the husband, we, cannot, we don't know if the husband is alive or dead. So, so that's, a, that's a different problem. Today, when we talk about the Agunas, it's a, it's a different type of Aguna. So the problem is basically multiplied and augmented by two reasons. Reason number one, is that the too many today the many more divorces in the from Jewish community and so also in the Jewish community where marriage is done according to Allah and here Europe is very different than the United States because in Europe the great majority of members of congregation or members of congregation where the rabbi is orthodox where the shul is orthodox even though the members are not practicing from Jews so for the 80 to 90 percent, those people, they got married according to Allah, and they are goodness because those women cannot get remarried. So reason number one, the many more divorces in the past. I know the divorces in, in the general society goes over 60 percent. When a person gets married today, there's a more of a chance of this person getting divorced and not getting divorced. And there's also affects the religious community. Also in the film community, the numbers of divorces are much, much higher than it used to be beforehand. It's not that people were happier one generation ago or two generations ago. In general, you know, you know, when I went to the dentist 40 years ago, 50 years ago, so they used to drill and drill holes and and do the dental work without uh, Novocaine, without any in painkillers. Today, you're going to tell somebody that they're going to start the drill on you without any painkillers. The person is going to die on the spot. You know, people today are much less inclined to suffer. Used to be, you know, you didn't like your husband, you didn't like your wife, you know, but uh, this was your lot from the Bainisham. That's what you lived with. You know, you suffered more, you suffered less. You suffer. Today, people want to enjoy life. So if something is not right, something is wrong, uh, you have not, uh, so that's it. And more than that, it used to be for women to um, get divorced was a great financial danger because uh, the husband supported the wife. And uh, getting divorced meant to down downgrade your lifestyle drastically. And you had to support yourself. Women, uh, women's salaries were much lower. Women were excluded from many of the uh, male, uh, right? So a lot of the women uh, just, uh, you know, with all the problems they had, they, they decided it's still better to, to, be, to be married. 
Today it's different. Today doesn't the husband doesn't smile the right way. The woman says, "Okay, that's it. I'm going home. That's uh, I'm ready to finish." So there are many more divorces today. Number one. Number two. It used to be that the communal structures were strong before the emancipation of Jews in Europe, which before Jews became official. In the Middle Ages, Jews were not citizens in Europe. In every city where there were Jews, it was a special agreement between the king or the prince who made an agreement with the few Jews that you allowed you know, 20 families, 50 families, 100 families can live here. And under special conditions, you're not citizen, you're a foreigner, and you have your own uh, legal system. And the rabbi was the head of the legal system. That's why the rabbi was called the Avbezden. And the rabbi was able to, and if somebody doesn't pay taxes or somebody breaks the law, so it, it's the rabbi who has to put this guy in jail or whatever. Because the community had ways and means to enforce enforce that people, it enforced not only the law and, and Jewish law. So if somebody didn't give a get, whatever, and the rabbi said, okay, you don't give the get, we're going to expel you from the community. Tomorrow, take your stuff and you have to leave your house, you have to leave the city. And goodbye, Charlie. The threat of expulsion or whatever or other sanctions from the community was, was strong enough to make sure that husbands who had to give a get according to Allah actually gave the get. Once uh, Jews became citizens with emancipation, and uh, so Jews became equal citizens according to the law, and membership in the Jewish community was not any more compulsory, meaning I can come to a city today, I can go, let's say, come to Philadelphia, Live in Philadelphia and not become a member of any shul. I can go today to this shul, like tomorrow I can go to another shul, and the day after tomorrow I can go to a third shul, or I can not go to shul at all. So it's all voluntary, it's not compulsory. So if one shul keep, kicks me out because uh, I don't get to get to my wife, so tomorrow I'm going to the other shul. There's no centralized uh, administration authority. So this also uh, complicated uh, the, the problem with Agunas. We also have to to uh, keep things on, in perspective, meaning, we're talking about uh, Aguna crisis, Aguna crisis, I mean, Aguna crisis. Uh, there's just a book which came out on Sarah Schneer, academic uh, biography of Sarah Schneer. And uh, I think somebody wrote a doctorate on her. And uh, over there, talking about the women's organization in, uh, in Germany before the war, said that in Poland before World War II, there were 20,000 Agunas. 20,000, 20,000, mostly husbands who left their wives to go to America. And they left their wives behind. So, well, he says, I'm going to have money. We'll bring you over over to, to New York. So there were 20,000 Agunas. Now, we talk, how many Agunas are we talking about? Today, we're talking about hundreds, including the United States, including Israel, including uh, Europe. With hundreds. The difference is, can I interrupt? The when people leave their families behind for a better life, you know, it's more of an emergency state. Here, when people are getting divorced, it's usually very miserable situations that are becoming more miserable, and they end up becoming abusive because using halacha to extort money or custody or power is abuse. So that is more of a crisis than the understanding of we are in a, in a crisis situation and the husbands are going to find livelihood and a better life to raise their kids. 
I'm not saying it's not a problem. I'm, I'm agree with you that for, for those hundreds of women whose life was destroyed because the, for years and years, maybe sometimes uh, tens of years, they couldn't get remarried. It is real. It's a life, uh, earth-shaking problem. But if we're talking about numbers, the numbers are 100 times smaller than they were 100 years ago. Okay? Okay. Now, this doesn't say that we don't have to solve the problem. So there were a few initiatives to solve that kind of problem. Now, we have to say that in Israel, it's much less of a problem because in Israel, personal status law is regulated by religious courts, which means in Israel, if you're Jewish, and the fact of getting married, getting divorced... It's completely intertwined and legally connected. It's, right. So if, let's say, the best thing in Israel tells the husband, you have to give a get to get to your wife, and the husband doesn't show up, or the husband doesn't do it. The next day, the uh, the person takes away the person's driver's license, closes his uh, his bank account, and uh, closes the country. He cannot leave the country, and in extreme cases, puts the guy in jail. So there's no there is no going to crisis in uh, in Israel. In the United States. Um, the way that most organizations try to deal with the problem is by having a prenuptial agreement, which is based on agreement between husband and wife, where if one side refuses to go to a basin, it will be sanctions, monetary sanctions to the person. And uh, there have been discussions to what extent this, uh, this agreement is uh, acceptable according to Allah or not. Now, in Europe, there's no centralized legal system. Every country has a different legal system. England, France, Italy, etc. So it's very hard to do agreements which are agreeable according to all the countries. So, but one day I came to the realization, because Europe is very special in, in, a, in the following way, the Jews in Europe always have very strong ties to Israel. They have all, a lot of times have Israeli passports, a lot of them, a lot of them have children, brothers, sisters, parents, grandparents in Israel. And many of them think that one day they're going to have to run away to Israel because of the anti-Semitism. There's been a very big aliyah from, from Europe to Israel, especially from Eastern Europe. So we thought that by empowering the Israeli rabbinical court system, by extending their jurisdiction to deal with Aguna cases, even though neither the husband nor the wife is, uh, are Israelis and live in Israel, this will be a way of putting sanctions and scare enough the husband to comply with the Bezdin request and come to Bezdin when he's called in solving the problem. And that's the law we thought of in 2013, and it was passed three years ago. And it was passed as a takana, so because some of the leftist politicians were against increasing the power of the Bezdin in Israel saying that it shouldn't be that, but uh, it was it passed in the Knesset 44 votes against 22. And then, just half a year ago, there was a, the Knesset committee decide, uh, discussing this this law, and actually we found out that uh, over 100 cases of Agunas were solved because of this law, either by the husband arriving in Israel and the wife requesting the best in Israel to put out a tzavikuv, which means uh, to not allow this person to leave Israel till the person gives a get, or by other sanctions, and uh, we solve dozens and dozens and dozens of problems because of this law. Unfortunately, 
This law had to be ratified now into a permanent law in May, but because there was no government and there were four elections in the last two years, so this has not been ratified. So we're waiting now for the new government in Israel to to start working next Sunday, and we hope that we'll be able to, uh, again, pass this law as a permanent law in the Knesset. Thank you so much for sharing this a very detailed description. We go more into detail on an episode we did with Keshet Star about a year ago. I would love to wrap this episode up by asking you if there are any words of wisdom you have for me as your daughter, <laughs> since this is a Father's Day special. Anyway, it's uh, always a privilege to talk to your children, even though they're far away. And thanks to God today, because of technology, we can talk to each other, can see each other, even though we're far away from each other. And just, I want to tell you that um, you know, the joy you bring us with your husband, with Menachem, and your two wonderful children, with uh, Ella and Maya. And I hear of your podcasts all over the world, and you're doing great work, and I wish you a lot of, a lot of atzlacha in all your endeavors. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Did I already thank you? Well, I'll go ahead and thank you once again for sticking around until the end and keep coming back. Thank you for sharing this podcast with your friends and helping spread the word and grow this podcast. Did I already mention that I am a podcast coach? I help my clients launch, produce, and monetize their podcast, and we have so much fun. I help my clients build movements businesses make an impact yep all through podcasting i also want to encourage you to go listen back to some of the older episodes for example last week i did a solo episode all about behind the scenes of my sixth album Vizikini. and if you haven't yet go stream it now go listen to it on apple music on spotify maybe even download it onto your device whatever it is keep doing what you're doing And make sure to tune in next time.